So forerunners are usually criminally underappreciated in their day and age. Forerunners aren't the Steve Jobs or the MLKs of their day and age. They're not. Forerunners are the unseen people that seed the ground for those folks' success. So a forerunner's genius, if it is seen at all, is only glimpsed in hindsight. It's in that rearview mirror of, of history. So names like Charlie Patton, Skip James, you're probably going, who are these people? That's the point. Robert Johnson, Sunhouse, they might not ring a bell. Those are all Delta Blues musicians. But I'm pretty certain you've heard of the British superstars they inspired, like the Rolling Stones, like Led Zeppelin, like Eric Clapton. Those southern bluesmen were largely unknown compared to the rock icons that came after them. So forerunners do uh, unseen, preliminary, unsexy, very gritty grunt work. They're not the rock star who gets on stage, greeted by the adoring, cheering audience. That's not them. Forerunners, you know what they're like? They're the roadies. <laughs> they're the people who arrive at the venue before anybody else does. They're the ones who spend time rigging the lighting, setting up the sound system, the stage. They aren't part of the performance. They're unseen. And they're the ones who labor to tear it all down long after the crowds have departed, long after the performers have hopped on a very comfortable and probably warm tour bus to go to their next location. At least that's how it used to be with live music before COVID hit. Roadies are forerunners. They're all about thankless but indispensable behind-the-scenes work. And early in Advent, we always focus on one of those forerunners, John the Baptist. So we'll be in Mark today, Mark 1, 1 through 8. And we come upon John uh, kind of right from the get-go in Mark 1, 1. Now each year, you may know this, but just a refresher, each year we focus on a different gospel. Uh, this year, called Year B, uh, it's Mark. Uh, Mark is very terse. He's very like to the point. Uh, he has this very economical, condensed writing style. I think of him as like, he's the most, he's the Hemingway of the gospel writers. His style's really... Um, a lot like Hemingway's, reminds me of him. And in Mark, we learn about Jesus by what he does. Okay, It's all about his actions that he takes uh, through Mark's eyes. He sees it. So Mark doesn't focus nearly as much on like what Jesus says. He focuses on what Jesus does. And in telling us the story of Jesus, Mark begins in a unique way. Now, I always pay really close attention to the beginning of any book. The first line, if it's really good, the first idea, uh, it's a hook. If it's good, it gets you. I remember the first time I read uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger. Uh, mother, the first line, mother died today, or was it yesterday? I don't remember. What's going on? I keep reading on. It hooks me. Uh, here's one you'll know. Finish it for me. It was the best of times. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, right? That tells you something about what's coming. It hooks you. So we remember a good opening line. Mark's account of the life of Jesus um, begins really differently than Matthew and Luke with their detailed genealogies and extended narratives. Very differently than John with that sort of otherworldly uh, before time began Christology. Mark begins with a title. And here it is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, not a verb in sight. Nothing. No traditional intro. No backstory, no birth narrative about Mary, Joseph, no stories about Jesus growing up, growing up in stature and wisdom, no grand theological framework to set the stage. It's just the facts, and it's clear as a bell. 
and John. That's how he begins. This is all about the gospel, good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John is not content to just say, this is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus being a Hebrew form of Joshua, Yeshua, right? That's a really common name, okay? It's like saying John or Mark. This book is about Jesus Christ. Right? Remember that title I talked about a couple weeks ago? That means Messiah or anointed one. Someone set aside to do a very special work of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, i.e. born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the divine Son of God. Packs a lot in there. So we begin with utter clarity as to Jesus' identity and mission. This is the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in fact, one of our earliest Christian symbols, who knows what the ichthus is? Every hand should just shoot right up. But you're cold, so I'll take this. That's fine. Ichthus, right? We see those. Ichthus is the Greek name for that symbol. That word is actually an acronym that spells out Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So I have to wonder if the early church was reading Mark's gospel, perhaps. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's where Mark starts. That's our beginning. Now, since he doesn't offer us much of a backstory, I pay really close attention to the scant background he does provide. The only backstory he offers us about the life of Jesus is through the forerunner, John the Baptist. And to introduce John, Mark pulls some living water from some pretty ancient wells. He pulls from the prophet Malachi. A messenger will go ahead of you but mainly from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Very familiar phrase. It's in the Handel's Messiah. These are prophecies which John fulfills. Now, John's prophetic role and his place in the great salvation story is this, to roll out the red carpet for Israel's Messiah King that is coming. That's his role. So when ancient Near Eastern queens and kings traveled, they literally would send workers ahead of them of the procession, the royal procession, to prepare the journey. Here's how they did it. They would literally prepare the roads and the byways. They would fill in holes. They would level hills. This is the making the way straight so that that procession could come through. I mean, talk about roadies. There it is. So John the Baptist's prophetic role was to call the nation of Israel to prepare the way of the Lord. Make way, make his path straight. He did this by inviting Israel to repent, to wake up, to rouse them to alertness. It's kind of, it's kind of like he was saying, hey guys, it's time. The hour has come. I mean, here comes the royal procession. It's coming. Here comes the king. So prepare the way of the Lord. That's what his mission was. We can see why Jesus later calls John a burning and a shining light. It's in John 3 or John 5, excuse me. Light sent to reveal what darkness had previously hid. Now let's remember, when the word of God comes to John, this is God breaking a 400 plus year silence between Old and New Testaments. You want to talk about waiting? Huh, boy howdy, you want to talk about good news? That's a long time. And John enters the picture, you know this, he's wild and woolly, he's dressed in camel's hair, you know, we've got the eating wild honey and the locusts. Uh, That's meant to remind us of another old prophet named Elijah. Elijah was the one who was said to precede the Messiah. So the Jews thought that when Elijah returned, the Messiah was not far behind. So Jesus later calls John Elijah, 
right? Confirming who John was, but also who Jesus was as the Messiah. So John the Baptist is, a, is the last in a very long line of Old Testament prophets. I find him, I think he's a fascinating figure. He's like a hinge figure that's standing between these two eras, right? He's standing at the end of one era and the beginning of another, right? Standing at that threshold between the old covenant and the new. What a view that must have been if John could see it. To be the forerunner, the one who goes ahead to prepare the people for Jesus and to throw light on Jesus' mission. So here's John the Baptist. He's a voice crying out in the wilderness, and he baptized many in that same wilderness as we read through the passage. This is important. When we hear that word wilderness, the dominant, and I mean dominant, Old Testament reference, it's to the place where Israel wandered around for many years, 40 So the wilderness is not a place for human habitation. It's not a hospitable place. Thought to be the realm of demons. Thieves and bandits like to hide out there, make their home there. Wild animals, dangerous. If you had to travel through the wilderness, you did not do it at night. That was very foolish. It was a very unsafe place of trial and tribulation. It was seen as, and I mean this very exactly as I say, it was a very God-forsaken place. That's how they viewed it. But... The wilderness would prove to be the place of testing where the Lord would shape and purify his people, right? Not so God-forsaken after all. The wilderness is not unredeemable. It wouldn't be our service without some sort of interruption, would it? Somebody tearing by in the drag strip or, yeah. The wilderness is a place of testing, but it is not God-forsaken. It's not unredeemable. It's not without purpose. Jesus' temptation and victory in the wilderness tells us that. So the wilderness still holds promise. And John the Baptist's ministry in that place tells us as much. And it is in that wilderness where John is preaching, where he is prophesying, where he's baptizing. So this is not coincidence that that's where he's going about his ministry. So God's word, after 400 plus years of silence, comes in a very unlikely place by way of a very unlikely herald to our eyes. The good news coming into a desolate place to rescue desperate people. I don't know about you, that sounds pretty familiar to me. It sounds like salvation. John the Baptist is heralding a new exodus. The Lord is coming to bring his people out of the wilderness yet again. The Messiah is coming. Calvin says it this way. Although every road were shut up and not a chink were open, The Lord will cleave a path through the most impassable tracks for himself and for his people. God is making his way in to bring us out of slavery. This is a new exodus led by God's son. And John is the point of the spear. What was John up to in the wilderness exactly? Well, our gospel text says he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's verse 4. Now, my first question Maybe yours, maybe not. I don't know. How was John's baptism any different than Jesus's later called to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Were they different? Yes and no. Baptism was a rite of cleansing in many religions, not just Judaism and Christianity. But here's how the Jews practiced baptism. It was for converts, proselyte baptism. So it was a ceremony where if you're a Gentile, uh, you were cleansed of your Gentile defilements. They baptized you. It was a purifying and an initiatory rite in Judaism for when you joined the family. 
But it wasn't meant for Jews. They were already in the family. But here's John baptizing his Jewish countrymen and women, essentially saying that they needed cleansing just like those unclean Gentiles. You don't think that ruffled some feathers? Scandalous. And he seemed to be saying, look, just because you're a descendant of Abraham, that doesn't mean you can ride it on his coattails. You must be right in your heart with the Lord, Jew or Gentile. So repentance is for all. That's exactly what John is calling Israel into. So John's baptism was of the old Jewish system, which meant it was an incomplete and sacramental sign of repentance. So you were forgiven, cleansed of your sins. That was the symbolism. So it's not completely removed from what we know of Christian baptism, but I'll comment more on that in a little bit. And he baptized people from everywhere in the region. That's why the text says uh, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, meaning from the countryside full of common day laborers all the way to the sophisticates who lived in the capital city in Jerusalem. In other words, this is all kinds of folks from all walks of life. And he called them to repent, to return to God. And he baptized them as a mark of that commitment. So how is John asking people to to prepare for the Messiah? Repent and be baptized as a sign of that changed heart. Turn away from your sin. Turn back towards the Lord. And just to add depth, not irony, but uh, this is just lovely. He's baptizing them where else but in the mighty Jordan River. That famous boundary marker that led into where? Promised land. (laughs) Right? So once the Jews crossed over the Jordan, their exodus from Egypt was complete. It was done. So when they entered the waters of the Jordan, they knew their wandering was over. And that God's promises were being fulfilled. To cross the Jordan means moving out of slavery and into freedom and promise. And folks, it sounds like the waters of baptism to me. Here's God baptizing a people, a new exodus. So that significance of the River Jordan, that's impossible to miss. Think of all the hymns that hear about crossing over the Jordan, speaking of moving from death into life. As John baptized and preached, here's what he proclaimed. The last two verses, seven and eight. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I love this because what it shows us is that when John is preaching, he exalts and he lifts up Jesus. When he's preaching, he seeks to exalt and lift up Jesus. Thank you, J.C. Ryle. Later on in his ministry, John will comment. You've heard this before. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's life was the gritty preliminary work of the forerunner. And once that work was complete, he would step aside in order for Jesus, the king of glory, to take the center stage. That is what a biblical forerunner looks like. And there's certainly a lesson in that for all of us. How often do we want to live in the spotlight a little too long or maybe forever uh, rather than shine the spotlight back on Jesus? So when John preached, he lifted up and he exalted Jesus, which meant he got out of the way. He knew his place in the story. And rather than hoarding that glory for himself, he gave it back to the Lord. He gave it to Jesus. That's why Scripture describes John as the morning star who eventually disappears when the Son of Righteousness appears. John the Baptist exalted and lifted up Jesus. That's how he preached. Love that. But John's proclamation didn't stop there. This is the final part of our passage. Uh, 
I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's some good plain speak by the Holy Spirit. That coming need to be born again. He heralded the new age which Jesus was bringing with him. When this Messiah comes, his baptism will be superior to John's. And here's how. John baptized to prepare. Okay? Jesus will baptize to save and to empower. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. What a difference that makes. It's one thing to be cleansed and forgiven, personal and important as that might be, but it's quite another to be empowered and made a people and sent out on mission. God is coming into the wilderness to find us and to lead us out. Don't you love that? Here's God coming in to rescue us, to lead us out. That's the good news, John proclaimed. The new exodus, which is inaugurated by the incarnation, which is coming in a few weeks. I think that's a relevant thing for our church right now. God coming into the wilderness to find us and to lead us out. I think so. So if we follow John's lead, we prepare for Jesus's advent by repentance. That's what Advent focuses on. So if you're wondering, what do I do with this waiting thing during Advent? Work on repentance. Devote yourself to that because our hearts can be a wilderness unto themselves, can't they? Change and transformation are desperately needed. So in this season, examine your heart. Ask, am I ready to meet Jesus? And I mean in the second coming sense, like am I really ready to meet him? If Jesus returned right now in the middle of all that's going on, Would you be ready? What would he find us doing? Would it just be holiday hustle bustle? Would it be like that, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's from the 70s or what, that old bumper sticker? Did you ever see this? Jesus is coming, look busy? Who's seen that one? Yeah, right. Are we just going to be busy when he comes back? I like to take those lyrics, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans, and replace life with Jesus. Jesus is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Are we ready for his coming? We all have plans to lay down and to surrender, right? So examine your heart in this season. Am I ready? And I think we can ask that as a church as well. Are we ready? That can be a corporate question too. Now, as a first step of repentance, I would suggest you begin this way. And I'll keep it simple. Slow down and listen. Slow down and listen. Don't get busy. Don't try to change yourself on your own power. Uh, Many of us don't want to slow down right now uh, in the holidays, even though COVID has certainly forced us to slow down more than uh, we would like sometimes. The holidays can be a very melancholy time of year, marked by loss, longing for things to be made right, longing for them to be made as they should be. So sometimes we fear the quiet, and what do we do? We flee from it. But we need to experience that ache and that longing, which is Advent. So let me encourage you, don't run from it. You can't outrun it, by the way. You can try, but you can't. Don't waste this opportunity of stillness and of listening. When we avoid the quiet, we miss out on the voice of God, and we miss out on the good stuff that he readily offers us, joy, peace, hope. Busyness can just be avoidance. So if we avoid our feeling of deep need and our painful ache for a Savior, we shouldn't be too surprised when the holidays leave us feeling flat, empty, alone, maybe even bereft. If you avoid your need for a Savior, 
don't be surprised if you just don't find one. So slow down and listen to God's voice and feel that ache. Feel it. God will meet you in surprising ways. Uh, He'll tell you what needs to change. He'll empower you to do that. And you might discover that it gives you a more kind, generous, joyful, uh, sacrificial heart. So every Advent, when I ruminate on John, because he comes around every year, we always have a week we focus on John the Baptist as a forerunner. Here's the one thing I'm always struck by. God didn't have to prepare the way like at all. He didn't have to herald, I'm coming and give us a heads up. He didn't have to send a forerunner like John the Baptist at all. Jesus could have certainly just showed up. He had every right to do that or not to even come at all. But instead, God, kind as he is, chooses to prepare us. He's so very good to prepare us, uh, to wait for us, to rescue us. So let's meet him. Let's wait upon him with repentance. I'll give you a couple of words from uh, the New Testament. We'll close here. Uh, Peter in his second epistle says this. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Perish, excuse me. So time is a gift during Advent, so not to be wasted. In Romans, here's what Paul tells us, and I love this. Or do you presume on the extravagance of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is so very good to prepare us, to wait for us, and to rescue us. So let's meet him and let's wait upon him with repentance during the season.